We're going to pick back up in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start reading in verse 11 here in just a moment. But as we get started, guys, I want us to hear this. Christians are intended to become agents of transformation for people living in darkness. Christians are intended to become agents of transformation for people living in darkness. This is a big idea. And this big idea comes with some assumptions and it comes with some responsibilities. It assumes that we have become people of the light. And not just that we have said a prayer and we believe that when we die we're going to go see Jesus Christ and be with him forever. But that light is beginning to make a difference inside of these lives and what we do and the way we interact with other people. It assumes that we are becoming people of the light. It also assumes that we are intended to be salt and light in the world around us. We're intended to live like this is true and critically important, not just for our lives, but for everyone else's life around us. We live like these things are true for everybody. This is a big idea. This is a powerful idea. In our passage of Scripture today, just a couple of verses ahead of where we pick up today, some of what we dealt with last week, Paul told us that we were once darkness, not just in darkness, but we were once darkness, but Christ has made us light. We are now in him. This is the movement from our own sin into the way of living out God's salvation in his way of life. Light in Christ is not something we achieve, it is something we are given by Christ. It's not something we sort of climb up a ladder to and finally we're there. We were living in darkness. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, the Apostle Paul says. And God, in His great mercy, because of the love with which He loved us, He makes us members of His kingdom. He pulls us into the light. In our passage of Scripture today, we learn more about what this movement from darkness to light means. It isn't just something that happens to us. But it's something that we are intended to show others. It's a way in which we're intended to live out the way of Jesus Christ. So here are two thoughts that are going to help us make sense of our passage of Scripture today. And the first is this. We expose what is in the darkness. This is the language that the Apostle Paul uses. We will expose what is in the darkness. It is important for Christians to be alert to what's going on around us and to be able to think about these things from a biblical perspective, to be able to take in what's going on in the world around us through the lens of the kingdom of God. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to say about these things? It's important for us to be able to do that. And then secondly, the light of Jesus Christ buys back what was lost. This is actually an incredible image that's used by Paul. As we unpack it a little bit and we figure out how it is that Paul uses it, it's, a, it's an incredible image. What is exposed to the light of Jesus Christ can actually be redeemed, can actually be bought back, can actually be pulled into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's incredible stuff. So guys, let's not lose track of this thought this morning. You and I, as Christians of the church of Jesus Christ, we are intended to become agents of transformation for people who are living in darkness. Let's begin reading in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 11. The text goes like this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead 
expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What a beautiful passage of Scripture here this morning. And Paul begins like this. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Hopefully by now, as we've made our way through chapter 4, especially the second half of chapter 4, and rolled into the first major section of chapter 5, hopefully this concept has come clear to us and we realize how important this is to Paul and to the life of Christians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 says this, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. It's another way of saying you must no longer live the way you used to live before you knew Jesus Christ. He says because they walk in darkness, right? You can't live or walk that way anymore. Ephesians 4, 22 and 23 say this, put off your old self and be renewed in the spirits of your minds. We're taking off an old way of life and something new is happening because of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we go back and we hear what Paul says there. Therefore, be imitators of God and walk in love. This language has been clear to us so far. And guys, notice this, light and darkness. This is not, you know, a gray area for the apostle Paul. There is darkness and there is light. And, and part of what we learn through this, guys, is that the way of Jesus Christ really is foreign to this world's way of doing things. It's a language that this world does not speak. It's, this, it's a language that sin does not speak. And before we were in Jesus Christ, it's a way of life that we did not know. So there's this stark difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And Paul says we need to learn the difference and walk in the difference in the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Some of the language that he uses here. Therefore, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. I want to think about this for a second. The works of darkness are unfruitful. They are unfruitful. They do not produce the way of Christ. They do not produce the fruit of righteousness as language that is used in other places in Scripture. How many of you guys know this? Darkness is really active. Darkness is active, but it is unfruitful. Darkness does a lot. Darkness seems to take over a lot. Darkness seems to confuse a lot of people, deceive a lot of people, cause a lot of trouble. Darkness is active, but it is fruitless. It is so active that often it seems to rule the day with how much it is able to accomplish or how many people it is able to deceive or how much confusion and division and hate darkness is able to create. It is really active. And it often seems to take over. As I was thinking about this uh, passage of Scripture, I was thinking about this concept I was taken back to this incredible psalm. It is Psalm chapter 73. And I would encourage you, when you find yourself frustrated with the works of darkness, when you find yourself feeling like 
How much more territory can the darkness take? The psalmist helps us process these things. And Psalm 73 is one of those passages. Listen to a couple of verses early in the chapter. Psalm 73, verses 2 and 3 say this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The first half of Psalm 73 is this kind of struggle. The psalmist is saying, I'm watching the darkness take territory. I'm watching the wicked rule. I'm watching the arrogant win. And my faith in you is beginning to slip. My feet are beginning to stumble. I don't know what to do with this. These are powerful things. In the life of the psalmist, in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ, there just are times when we watch darkness take territory, make great claims on truth and on humanity. But we must learn that the deeds of darkness are fruitless. And guys, God will not be outmaneuvered. God will not be outmaneuvered. He will not be outdone. The first half, roughly, of Psalm 73 is that struggle. But there's a turning point in the middle of the chapter. Verses 16 and 17, the psalmist says this. But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And the rest of Psalm 73 is a psalmist saying, but as soon as I walked into your presence, as soon as I put my eyes on you, as soon as I realized again how great my God is, my faith was made strong again. I was able to worship again. I was able to realize that eternity is safe again. When I brought myself back into the presence of God, I was put back on solid ground. Guys, listen to this. Eternity makes justice inevitable. That needs to be understood. Eternity makes justice inevitable. Because the one God who truly exists is a God of righteousness and holiness and glory, and He is the King of kings who will reign forevermore. Eternity makes justice inevitable. He is also the God of mercy and forgiveness and steadfast love and divine and unconscionable patience with individuals. And so he holds off because Scripture says he desires everyone to be saved. But eternity makes justice inevitable. The works of darkness are unfruitful, but God will not be outdone and God is still on the throne. When we struggle with this, guys, put your eyes back in, on God. Put yourself back in the presence of the sanctuary of God and pay attention to who he is. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We don't just avoid them, but Paul says, I want you to take them and bring them into the light. I want you to expose them and show them for what they truly are. Now, we don't dwell on them in terms of gossip, so to speak. 
For it is, in verse 12, he says, it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. It doesn't become a matter of obsession or gossip with us, but we're exposing these things to the light of the kingdom of God, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to, we're asked to shine the light of truth on the works of darkness. So guys, Christians should know what they are. We should know what the works, the deeds of darkness are. Avoid them and show them to be false. Show them to be broken. Show them to be the kinds of things that actually tear lives apart instead of put them back together again. Both behaviors and ideas. It's not just what we do, but it's the ideas that drive them. It's not just how we interact with each other. It is that, but it is also the worldview behind that. It is the, it, they are the dominant cultural philosophies that drive us to treat each other the way that we do, to see each other the way that we do. We need to know what they are, and we need to expose them. Scripture is clear about this, guys. Wise and courageous Christians are the salt and the light of the earth. Wise and courageous Christians are the salt and the light of the earth. We, t- we need to get to know how it is that things are broken, how it is that things go wrong, with how we behave and with the ideas that run our culture, and at the very least, be willing to be aware and thoughtful and agents of transformation in the kingdom of God. Every one of us is intended to be an agent of transformation in the kingdom of God. Now, a little bit about me. <laughs> I get to, see, I get to bore you guys with, with stories about me every now and then, just, all right, just so you know. It is exactly this kind of concept that pulled me into the ministry when I was about 17 or 18 years old. It was actually a clear kind of movement in my life. There were a set of steps that I felt like I was headed in one particular direction. Even the classes in school I was taking, the way I was preparing for college, I thought I was moving in one direction. And then two or three things happened. The dominoes fell, and I was called into ministry. And it was exactly this kind of thing that pulled me into the ministry. I had watched a few of my friends who were a year or so older than I was make their way into college, and it didn't take very long for them to just sort of begin to drift away from the faith. One semester, one year at college, and they didn't come back to church. They didn't come back to their Christian friends. They didn't come back to their faith, and it just absolutely tore me to pieces. And it was during that period of time that God birthed inside of me a passion for the Word of God. Because of my family and the church that I grew up in, it was a Bible-preaching and a Bible-believing church, and so that was born into my DNA. There were other people around me inside of the congregation that were showing me how important the Word of God really was, and so this passion for the Word of God got birthed inside of me. Then there was this passion for truth, not just what is truth, but what truth is and how it works in the lives of people. And then that moved into this passion for apologetics. What does it mean to defend the faith? What does it mean to expose the works of darkness? What's false with other ways of life so that we could see the truth even more clearly? And that drove me even further into the darkness and to a degree in philosophy, as at least some people like to tell me. I actually had a minister once, a pastor once, while I was doing my philosophy degree, he asked me what I was studying. I told him, and he looked at me, and he tilted his head and goes, are you still saved? think so. (laughs) Not everybody has that kind of path 
or has that kind of passion. But guys, recognize this. The church of Jesus Christ has always done these things. Whether it's you or me individually or people inside of the body of Christ, we have always done these things. These tools are at our disposal. These people are at our disposal. The church has always defended the gospel and has always searched for truth. And we have always had these resources at our best. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is able to do. So Christians learn how to develop a certain kind of situational awareness, a spiritual situational awareness. What really is going on around us? Are the ideas behind the movements that control our culture right now, are they true? Do they glorify Jesus Christ? What do they have to do with my walk, with the truth of the gospel, with what Christ wants to do in the lives of people? These are the kinds of questions that we learn to ask. Guys, look, most influential cultural ideas come with a lot of peer pressure. All of life is high school. That's one of my personal theories. The peer pressure you thought you left behind in junior high and high school, you didn't. (laughs) And a lot of cultural ideas come with a lot of peer pressure. They come with a lot of emotional strength and power. You must believe this. If you're going to be a a good person, you have to believe this, 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 and this. And especially in the world of social media, you have to hashtag, hashtag things the right way or you are not a good person. It comes with a lot of emotional power. There are a lot of smart people out there who are telling you that if you disagree with them, you're just not a smart person. A lot of the beautiful people in our culture tell you, you have to agree with me basically because I'm one of the beautiful people, right? Here's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. This is a familiar passage to many of us. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Hope needs to be evident in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. Gentleness and respect needs to be what we lead with when we deal with other people and ideas. So what's the cultural moment? What's the emotional moment? What do the beautiful people believe so that I can sort of get on board and be considered one of them? These aren't the kinds of questions that we are concerned with as Christians. We're concerned with questions like, is it true? Can I believe these things and worship Jesus Christ as Lord? And guys, so it is with the sexual revolution, right? There's a lot of cultural pressure behind it. But the Christian needs to be courageous and discerning and be able to say, I need to learn how to love and respect, but disagree for the good of the other. To be different from the world for the sake of the world is a phrase that we have used a lot inside of this congregation. And so it is, guys, with the official political movement of Black Lives Matter. When you read on their website what they believe in, it is a powerfully secular organization. And as you read what they argue for, I as a follower of Jesus Christ can't follow that. But guys, hear this. I don't need a political party to tell me that racism is evil 
and that oppression needs to be dealt with and justice needs to be done. That's the gospel. That's the kingdom of God. Now listen, sometimes the job of the Christian is to take seeds out of poison pots and plant them in the gospel. Imagine taking a seed that would be a beautiful flower, would be beautiful fruit, but it's inside of a pot and the soil is clay or the soil is sand and there's no nutrient there. The seed is just going to die. It's not going to do what it's supposed to do. Or the soil in the pot has grown fungus or bacteria or mold and that soil is just going to kill the seed. Sometimes the work of the Christian is to take the seed out of that pot and plant it in the soil of the kingdom of God so that it can become what it's supposed to become. We are intended to become agents of transformation for people who are living in darkness. Guys, the Christian is not a mirror for the culture's current desires. We are God's prophetic and merciful witness to sinners who need a Savior. That's how we became Christians. We didn't become followers of Jesus Christ because someone walked up to us and told us, everything you believe is fine, you don't need to change a thing. We became Christians because someone said, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Right? All right, I'm going to mix metaphors. We talked about seeds and poison pots. Guys, lost ships need lighthouses. What the church likes to do sometimes is it sees a lot of people getting on board a ship and going out to sea, and a lot of the church thinks, I need to get on that ship because that's where everybody is going. The storm comes, the ship begins to take on water, and everybody on that ship is going to go down. Lost ships need lighthouses. They need the church of Jesus Christ to stand firm in the gospel and everything that it stands for to show the way of light in the kingdom of God. I love this passage in Proverbs. This, this kind of passage, this language shows up actually a few times in the book, but in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, it says this, Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets she raises her voice, and at the head of the noisy streets she cries out, at the entrance of the city gates she speaks. If you can imagine a place where people have congregated to do anything, wisdom stands there and speaks to them and says, you guys are awesome, keep doing what you're doing. Wisdom says, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? She stands at the street corner and she says, this is brokenness, this is darkness. Get to know Jesus Christ. This is wisdom. And then Paul says something incredible happens. When darkness is exposed to the light. Listen to what he says in verse 13 and then the first part of verse 14. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. It's actually a crazy sentence. You read through that and And your first kind of thought is, well, the image is we walk into a dark room and we turn on the light and then we see everything that is there. Darkness 
Um, Proverbs says, those who walk in darkness don't even know what they stumble over because they're just walking in darkness. So we turn on the light and we see where the chairs are and then we don't stumble. It's not just that. Listen to this. The kinds of phrases, the phrases that Paul uses in this passage that we just read, he uses these phrases in a couple of other places in 1 and 2 Corinthians to talk about salvation, to talk about redemption. Say, this is how you were brought into the light. This is how you became a child of God. You were darkness, and the light has been shown on you. You now belong to Jesus Christ. This is language of redemption, of God buying back what is His. Who is His? So what, guys, is the goal of exposing the deeds and the ideas of darkness? What is the goal? The goal is the redemption of people and ideas. It is that they too would become followers of Jesus Christ, that they too would find a new kingdom to live in, that they too would have a, a secure eternity in Jesus Christ. We don't do these kinds of things to make sure people know how wrong they are. God is the God who sorts all of that out. Scripture says vengeance is his, justice is his. Our job is to be agents of transformation for those who are living in darkness. We do it to bring people into the light, at least to make the path as clear as we possibly can. Here's how Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives lights to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Guys, that is powerful stuff. May the world see the life of the church and realize there's a different way to live. May the world see us and say, maybe there really is a God. Maybe I really do need to get to know this Jesus Christ. This passage ends like this. Paul says, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. At first glance, it sounds like Paul's quoting an Old Testament scripture. He says, therefore, it says, but this is actually not Old Testament scripture. It borrows from a few passages in the book of Isaiah, but it is most likely something that is common to the early church, a piece of poetry that they recite to each other that they know, a hymn that they sing. And Paul is able to tell this Ephesian church, as we all sing together, as we all recite this creed together, we know what it says. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This, friends, is thanksgiving when it is spoken from those who know what has happened to them because of Jesus Christ. It is thanksgiving from those who know the salvation and the mercy that they have been given by Jesus Christ. 
I was dead, now I am alive. I was asleep, I am now awake. Christ has risen in my life, and now I am a child of God. Now I am free from the power of sin, and now I am a new creation. The Christian says this, speaks this, recites it, sings it, and it's thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us. And it is a plea. We say these things as a plea to others to come and be a part of this family, to hear the call of Jesus Christ and to put your trust in him so that he will be able to change your life. What you think is hope right now is not. What you think is light is just more darkness. The only solution to the darkness of our world is the light of Jesus Christ arising in our hearts. Sleeper, it is time to awake, it says. I was once in darkness, and God has brought me into his light. And now I become... We become an agent of that light, an agent of transformation, speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking the kingdom of God into this world so that they too may know who Jesus is. Let's pray.